great to be with you today. I want to give a big shout out to those of you right now worshiping on Facebook Live or maybe you're at Crossroads West. We are uh, glad that you have decided to be a part of our experience today. Uh, before we go any further, I want to turn your attention to these little cards that should be on the end of your rows here at Newburgh at West. It should be in each chair that you're sitting in. These cards are not just to hang on your refrigerator or uh, not just to collect to put in some scrapbook. No, these are invite cards uh, for you to take to your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, family members that uh, do not have a church home. This is uh, a way to invite them to our Easter services coming up at the end of this month. And uh, the reason why we are crazy enough to host over nine services between our Newburgh and West Campus is because we want to be as prepared as possible to welcome the people that you bring with you so that we can serve them, so that we can love them, and we can show them how what happened back then on that first Easter morning has the potential to change everything in our life today. And so take as many of these as possible and invite the people uh, in your life that don't have a church home. Easter is going to be an incredible experience here at Crossroads, and we are excited about what God is going to do. Now, we're going to wrap up this series called Fearless that we've been in for the past several weeks. And, and we have been saying in this series that, that fearless is just another way to describe what it looks like for us to live by faith. All right. Now, faith is this confidence that God is who he says he is, and he will keep all of his promises, even, even when there might be reasons for us to doubt him. Right. I mean, that, that, that's, what, that's what faith is. We've said you can live by faith or you can live by fear, but, but you can't live by both. Now, all throughout the Bible, about 365 times, believe it or not, we are told to not fear. Don't be afraid, the Lord says. Now, what's interesting is that each time we are told to not be afraid, it's always paired with a promise of God, either before that command or, or after it. Why? Because we can live by fear, we can live by faith. And, and the more we focus on who Jesus is, the more we focus on the goodness of God, our fears tend to subside. And so that's the question that we have all been wrestling with. What are we afraid of? What fear tends to dominate our life? And, and what has control over us? And, and how can we follow Jesus more closely? Now, I wish I could stand up here and tell you that, you know, faith is going to make your life easier. Following after Jesus is going to make you more popular. And, and life is just going to be a walk in the park from here on out. I mean, if that were the case, I don't think anybody could actually reject Jesus because who wouldn't want a better life? But, but that's not always the case. I mean, sometimes following after what Jesus says is right, true, and, and best for our life, it, it comes at a cost. It maybe will make us less popular. It'll make our life not easier. It'll make it more difficult. And sometimes this journey feels like what author Philip Yancey says is a ambidextrous faith. So in, in one hand, we hold the blessings of God. Our salvation assures us of, of forgiveness. We have God's favor. We have eternity with him forever. We are freed from our sin. We're free from condemnation. And yet in the other hand, in the other hand, faith also means following after what God says, even when our circumstances tell us differently. Faith means that we hang on even when we want to let go. The four biographies on Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, found in the Bible, there were several moments throughout Jesus' life when the crowds were following him. They loved what he had to say. They loved the miracles that he, were, that he was performing. But then whenever he started to, to drill down deeper and, and started to talk about what it meant to actually follow him, the cost of following Jesus, 
time and time again, we see that, that the crowds tend to get less and less. Pe- people deserted Jesus. That m- many could not follow Jesus because, because of the cost. Do you know what that's like? And so I, I want to ask you a question. I want to begin with this question today, and I don't want you to take this lightly, okay? I want it to just sit and uh, allow, I want you to process it, okay? I want this question in a way to bother you the way that this question has kind of interrupted me this week, okay? As we get started today, he, he, here's the question. Are you willing to stand up even if you have to stand alone? Are you willing to stand up? Are you willing to to hang on to to what Jesus says is right, true, and best, even if if you're all by yourself, even if you have to stand alone? Maybe another way to ask this is, how far are you willing to follow Jesus? What is that cost that that you you won't exceed? How much is too much sacrifice for you to follow after Christ? So in this series, we have been walking through a book in the Bible called First Peter that was really a letter written to some Christians about 2,000 years ago. They were being fired from their jobs. They were being cast out of their community. They were facing isolation, persecution. Some of them were even facing the threat of death because they wouldn't let go of Jesus because that, that's where faith led them. And, and so this guy named Peter, who was close friends with Jesus, wrote them this letter to say, hey, keep going. You, you gotta hang on, all right? And so we're gonna end uh, that letter today by looking at chapter 5 in 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn there now. There should be a Bible either in front of you or in the seat below you. Uh, 1 Peter can be found towards the back of your Bibles in between the books of James and in 2 Peter, okay? Now, if you don't have a Bible or Bible app, words will be up here on the screen. We're going to pick up in chapter 5, uh, verse 5, as Peter kind of signs off and gives his final goodbye uh, to these believers. All right, verse 5, he says this. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in in due time. Now, it's really interesting that, that Peter concludes this letter by addressing the elders of these different churches that he's writing to. The image that we're given previously in this chapter uh, describing the relationship between elders and the flock or the congregation is this imagery of a shepherd interacting with and watching over his sheep. Now, I have the privilege of being an elder with nine other men here at Crossroads, and I gotta tell you that it, it is an incredible honor to, to sit with these men, to know these men, because these are guys who have guided our church through a lot of stuff in the past. All right, th- These are men that, that have sacrificed in a way that you probably may never know or may never understand why, because they love you, they love this church, they, they love our direction, and, and they love ultimately the chief shepherd, who Peter refers to in verse four, it's, it's Jesus Christ. You see, the role of, of a shepherd is to not only care for the sheep, but also to lead the sheep to different pastures, to, to maybe new meadows before. The other day, I was in an elders meeting, and I wish you could have heard it. One guy said, you know what? I just love showing up at our church on the weekends and to see all the people that, that God is drawing to himself in this community. All the new faces are just so exciting. Another guy spoke up and said, yeah, I actually bumped into an old coworker. I hadn't seen him in probably 20 or 30 years. And and I went up to him, introduced myself. We recognized each other. Come to find out it was his first time, it was his first time to church ever. 
And so that, 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 those are the kind of conversations that, that are happening. But I gotta tell you, our job as elders is to prepare everyone everywhere for when the time comes when the chief shepherd appears. Again, that, that's Jesus Christ. And, and so the challenge with us at times is, is we are in the midst of a battle, we're in the midst of a war. And I gotta tell you that, that sometimes the sheep don't always wanna go where the sheep need to go. And so our job as elders at times is to gently lead people, to lead sheep in a way, in, into a direction where they don't necessarily wanna go, but, but it's, where, it's where they need to go. And so when life gets tough, when, when, when things are challenging for you, my question is, do you trust the good shepherd? I mean, can, can, can you keep your eyes on him even when those who are caring for you in this life are failing you and our flaws and our mistakes are exposed? Can, can, you, can you remember that the good shepherd is good and he can be trusted? Jesus one time was talking with a group of people and he's describing what his role in this life is really all about. And so he's standing next to some religious leaders and he says, I'm like the good shepherd, okay? But I want you to notice how Jesus continues to explain this metaphor, explain this imagery, okay? John chapter 10, here's what we read. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, okay? The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and, and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. You see, Jesus was telling the people listening in right now, hey, nothing, nothing intimidates me, okay? I, I'm fearless. It doesn't matter what the predator is. I, I'm fearless. He is the fearless shepherd who promises to deliver us in the fire, from the fire, or maybe through the fire. I want you to notice in, in verse 12 how it says that when the wolf attacks the flock, the sheep go running, the, the, the sheep scatter. All right, studies have actually shown how, um, how our minds and our bodies react whenever we feel scared or uh, we fear something. There's this little part of our brain called the amygdala that, that sends this trigger, this, um, th this message, this signal all throughout our nervous system that causes our body to either run or to defend ourselves. It's really a defense mechanism. God has wired us in this way. And so whenever the amygdala senses fear or a threat, it sends this message throughout our body. That's when our heart rate tends to increase, our palms or maybe our armpits get a little bit sweaty, our pupils tend to dilate because our bodies are naturally preparing for either a fight or to run away if you're a pansy, right? Okay, so that, that's how our body responds. Now, as great as that is, okay, as great as that is, studies have also shown how it is really tough for our minds to think rationally whenever we're afraid, all right, where our amygdala, when it's sending these signals off, we don't have the ability in that moment to sense it if the threat is legitimate, if it's real, if it's true, or if it's merely an illusion, if it's fake, if it's just a prank, right? Military experts at the end of the 20th century came up with this term to describe it because soldiers have experienced this in combat. They call it the fog of war. In the middle of combat, when the fight is, is raging on and on and on, it's tough, it's tough to determine who's on whose side, what is real, what is not. It's the fog of war. You tend to really be confused when that happens. And so knowing that, that the battle is going on and the fog of war is kind of setting in upon these believers, Peter ends by reminding them of just some basic truths. And here's, here's the first one that we can identify in our text. It goes like this. 
All right, sometimes our biggest threat is friendly fire, right? Sometimes our biggest threat is friendly fire. You see, Jesus predicted that his church would grow. It would be the most unstoppable movement the world has ever seen. But yet, right before his crucifixion in John chapter 17, he actually prayed that that his followers would be one. He he pleaded to his father that, that we would be united. Now, this is really a big deal. Jesus takes this seriously because our unity as a church is symbolic for the unity that God the Father has with God the Son and God the Spirit. And so our unity is not only a representation of who God is, of the God that we serve, but it's also a witness. It's a testimony to the world around us that, hey, in spite of our differences, in spite of us all wanting to be right, we, we are a family. We're a family with a mission. You see, if you think about it, Fear is one of the reasons why we tend to separate ourselves based upon differences. Fear is really at the root of of racism. Therefore, putting aside our fears is our only hope of being one. The number one thing that has always divided churches over the past 20 centuries is when we do the opposite of what Peter said to do in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. You see, nothing destroys a team quicker than pride. My coach growing up used to say, you know, there's no I in team. And to that I'd say, yeah, but you can spell me with team, right? (laughs) There's a reason why he didn't like me. Now, we're called to humble ourselves because Jesus intends for this community to be a safe place where we can help each other out in the midst of, of this war. Division is what happens when a church goes from focusing on Jesus to then focusing on something else of lesser importance or, or someone else of lesser importance. Now, none of us are above doing this. We're all prone to it. You see, in, instead of, of making it about Jesus, we, we then begin to focus on a pastor. We focus on a leader, Right? Instead of making it about Jesus, it, it becomes, you know, a place for us to flaunt our intelligence, to, to, for other people to see how right we are. Rather than making it about Jesus, we see church as this kind of club to, to make us feel good, to boost our self-esteem, rather than talking about real things like sin, brokenness, and, and repentance. We're, we're, all, we're all prone to this. And yet it's a, it's a subtle shift when, when we move from unity to division. And you see, it's the deception of it that makes this so dangerous. All right, now to be fair, we rarely recognize it when we're taking part in friendly fire. And so for the sake of the church and our mission, it has to, it has to be exposed. All right, when we, when we think too highly of ourselves, we, we tend to play the comparison game with other believers. Do you know what this is about? So suppose you, you might feel convicted or guilty about a sin that you're dealing with and, and you're tired of, of carrying that around. And so rather than confessing it, rather than you know, uh, dealing with it appropriately, you begin to compare yourself with some other Christian who might be dealing with a similar sin or maybe a worse sin than you. And so all of a sudden, we numb ourselves to guilt and conviction by simply comparing ourselves to someone else who who is dealing with something much worse than we are. We feel better about ourselves, yet when we do this, it's like we're loading the gun and we are firing upon brothers and sisters who who aren't against us, but are actually with us and for us. When we think too highly of ourselves, we, we give in to greed, right? 
This is when we might approach church, church with a perspective of, you know, what, what can this place do for me? You know, what, what needs and, and what wants can, can these people do for me? And so we go church shopping. Now, part of this is part of our culture. We're a consumeristic driven society. And yet when that seeps into the church, it becomes not about Jesus. It becomes not about one another, but it becomes all about, it becomes all about us, doesn't it? And so we, we end up in this place of, of loading the gun and firing upon one another and shooting at people who, who aren't against us but are actually with us and, and for us. When we elevate ourselves too highly, we see how right we can be rather than loving others. And, and so you maybe wouldn't say it out loud, but, but you've got specific convictions and beliefs about your interpretation of scripture. I mean, you, you feel very strongly about spiritual gifts, how you interpret the Holy Spirit, or, or maybe the end times, gender roles in the church, how you view baptism. And, and again, you wouldn't say it out loud, but if another believer disagrees with you, sees things differently than you, he, you kind of think, well, they, they just aren't as mature as me, or maybe, maybe, they, don't, maybe they aren't even a Christian. And, and so what we end up doing when we do that is we load the gun and we end up firing upon brothers and sisters who aren't against us, but, but are actually with us and, and for us. Now, here's the thing. The biggest ego that I have to deal with is my own, Right? You see, nobody gets between you and God more, more than you do. And one indicator of pride and that can lead to division if we're constantly offended by others, why does that, what does that have to do with pride? Well, it's another way of casting yourself as superior to others. And so we need to remember that we're on the same team. We're better and more effective together. Pliny was a governor in the Roman Empire uh, back in the ancient world around 111 AD, he wrote a letter to the emperor of Rome concerned about how rapidly the church was growing. There's this movement uh, of people who follow the, this supposed guy who, who rose back to life and uh, you just need to know about it. So he writes this letter to the emperor in Rome and basically is like, what should we do about this problem? Now, we know back then that the church at the time was very lean. They were focused on loving Jesus on Christ and, and also reaching people who were far from the Lord. And as a result, the church was just taking off. Here's what, here's what portions of this letter says. It's really interesting. Pliny says that this movement involves such large numbers of endangered people, Christians, from all ranks and all ages and both sexes. Saying, hey, I don't know what's happening here, but it's pervasive. He also says in the same letter, this contagious superstition, Christianity he's referring to, is not confined to the cities, but is spread to the villages and rural districts. He's saying it's uncontrollable. It's this movement. You just need to be aware of it. And so history shows us time and time again that the very thing that we might fear most is actually the very thing that God uses for his ultimate best. We should be reminded that God uses what we fear most to accomplish what is ultimately best, but there is a lot at stake here. Friendly fire isn't easy to take because it usually comes from people that we love, we know, and, and we trust. But again, are you willing to stand up even if it means you have to stand alone? What are some ways that maybe you've contributed to friendly fire? Let's pick back up in, in verse seven of our text. Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, though, standing firm in the faith, keeping your eyes on Jesus, in other words, because you know that the family of believers throughout the whole entire world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. 
Now, I first want you to notice how Peter calls them to, to put aside every ounce of worry, anxiety, everything that they're insecure about, and, and to cast it upon Jesus. What does that mean? Well, that word cast in the Greek literally means to throw off on to someone else, to throw something in your life onto someone or something else, okay? In other words, it's this deliberate decision to trust. Now, Anxiety is a form of fear, so it's nearly impossible for us to trust and also be anxious at the exact same time. And so one of the forms of attacks that, that Peter makes very clear right here is that, that we are prone and tempted towards sin. And we might, we might give in to weakness when we least expect it. And so when the fog of war continues to be your reality, don't forget this next part, and that is you are only as strong as your biggest weakness. You're only as strong as your biggest weakness. All right, Satan in this text is referred to as this lion that, that prowls around like a roaring lion. Now, I found this really interesting because lions are one of the most strategic hunters in the entire animal kingdom. One of my favorite animals of all time. I can't wait to have one in heaven one day, all right? Now, I've done a little study on this and come to find out uh, lions are very territorial, okay? They're so intelligent that they actually read the wind patterns that might be sweeping across the plains. And, and so uh, they, they usually stick in, they, they stay in one spot, wait for their prey to come to them. And when they know that, they're her, that the herd that they're gonna attack is near, they always make sure that they are downwind so that the predators uh, can't sense them or smell that the, the lion is near, that they sense danger, okay? Now, if you've ever watched Discovery Channel or Animal Planet or anything like that, you may notice that, that when a lion is actually attacking a herd, it rarely runs full speed when attacking a group of gazelles or uh, whatever, right? It, it, it just kind of jogs towards them. Why, why does a lion do that? Well, as the lion does that and, and, the, and the prey that it is running after senses that a lion is near, they begin to run and scatter and, and run away, right? They're trying to protect themselves. Well, as the prey do that, it exposes in a moment the weak, the vulnerable, or the injured prey, and that all of a sudden for the lion becomes dinner, all right, it doesn't want to work too hard to eat, and, and so it knows I'm just gonna I'm just gonna kind of go 50% here, and as I do that, it's gonna reveal to me the, the, the most vulnerable, the weakest, the, the part of the herd that that ultimately is easiest for me to catch. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, that, that describes a lot of our stories. Maybe you had this moment where you felt mauled by a lion because you were, you were weak, you, you were vulnerable, you, you weren't alert to, to what was actually happening, and, and so you ended, up, you ended up making a decision that you, you swore you were never gonna do. You ended up, in a moment's notice, blowing up some of the most important parts of your life because you were hurting, you were needing healing. You, you felt vulnerable, right? And some of us, we have blown up some of the most important parts of our life simply because we were unaware of what was actually happening of the lion that, that was attacking us when we were weakest. Last week, I talked about how God has created each of us differently with certain gifts and abilities. And if you didn't uh, hear last week's message, I encourage you to go online and check it out. Now, we looked at these nine different patterns or categories that all of us find ourselves in, okay? Now, you can identify with one or two of these patterns. They are as follows. You're either a reformer, server, achiever, artist, thinker, loyalist, 
uh, enthusiast, commander, or, or peacemaker. Now, the reason why this is so important is because the pattern uh, or category that you find yourselves helps you identify your gifts, your abilities, and how God intends to use you uh, for effectiveness and purpose in this life. Now, one of the reasons why it is so important that you actually identify your gifts and you identify how you've been made and how God has wired you is because your greatest strength is also your biggest weakness. All right, your gifts make you vulnerable to certain sins. Show me your gifts and I'll show you what you're really tempted with on a day-to-day basis. For example, I, I'm an achiever, okay? I love to accomplish things. I love to run after a mission with people. I, I love to stand up and, and talk in, in front of others and get, get you excited about uh, what, what the future holds. Now, this can be a downside for me because it easily can become all about Patrick. It can become the Patrick show. I want the center of attention a lot of time. Sometimes I tend to confuse my gifts with, with my identity, okay? And so I take failure in some ways, very personal. And when I fail at something, I wanna get back up and fight even harder and, and I wanna achieve even more. Why? Because I feel like I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. I've gotta prove myself. You might think, well, that sounds really great. That, that's really noble. Well, not really because you know what? Because it becomes an idolatry issue for me. When I feel like I don't measure up, I I go back and work that much harder. And do you know who pays the price for that? My family. And so all of a sudden, something becomes more important than the most important ministry God has entrusted to me, and that is my wife and my children. Simon Peter, he, he was an enthusiast, okay? He was that guy who, who was ready to jump out of the boat when Jesus was walking on water. He was so passionate, he was excited. Now, his weakness was he was a little bit overconfident. He dealt with his own pride as well, okay? He wanted to flaunt his commitment. He wanted to flaunt his disciplines in, in front of others so other people would know just how committed to Jesus he was. The night before Jesus was betrayed, Jesus is sitting down with all of his buddies and he's having this meal with them and Jesus says, hey, you're about to disown me. Check out what Peter says. Peter replied, look, I mean, even if I have to, even if all fall away on account of you, Jesus, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three different times. But Peter declared, I mean, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, have you seen all these Bible studies I've gone through? Do you know how often I, I pray? Do you, do you know how committed I am to you? I'll never disown you. And all the other disciples said the exact same thing. Several hours later, the, the rooster crowed and immediately Immediately, Peter realized what he had done. On three different occasions, he denied knowing Jesus. Why? Out of fear that his reputation might be tainted. One of the reasons why why God allows certain battles or, or certain wars to start or continue in our life is because we're being sanctified. Now, sanctification is a, fan, is a fancy Bible word that, that means to the, the process of God molding and shaping us to be more like Jesus Christ. Each battle has the potential to chisel away at the old version of ourselves, okay? Sanctification is also the reminder uh, to us of how patient God is. One of the ways that God's patience is described in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, is God is is long-suffering. He willingly, in other words, suffers for us for our benefit. God is actually preparing you and infusing strength into you for battles in your future that you know nothing about right now. A couple weeks ago, uh, 
I traveled with some of our staff over to the Middle East and visited with some of our, our partners that you support. And we were having dinner one night with some new followers of Jesus who were just really excited about the Lord and they were separated from their family and, and understand that they come from a country where pledging allegiance to Jesus would most definitely mean persecution, perhaps even, perhaps even death. Before the dinner was over, we, we asked them, hey, what, what can we pray for you? How can we pray for you? Now, I expected for them to say, well, you know, I pray, pray that we can, we can be reunited with our families. They were away from their family for about three or four months at this point in time. That's not what they asked for. They didn't have a lot of money, so I mean, I thought, well, pr pray, pray that God would provide for us, right? That, that's not what they prayed for. They said in very broken English, they said, would, would, you, would you pray, would you pray that, that we would be bold and that we would keep our eyes on Jesus no matter what and that even, even if we have to die, that, that we would remain faithful? I don't know what battle you're walking in here today with. I don't know what kind of war zone awaits you at home right now. Maybe you're waiting for her to finally text you back. Maybe you're waiting for him to apologize for what he did. Maybe you just think, man, if I just had one more drink, one more hit, everything would be okay. Or maybe you're really fearful about what is gonna to happen tomorrow in the office? Again, whatever your battle is, it's that relationship, it's that conversation, it's that thought that you just can't let go of. Now, maybe God will deliver you from it quicker than expected. Maybe he won't. But what if this challenge before you is your constant reality because God is stripping you of different illusions in life that you have been leaning your life on to show you that he alone is enough and that his grace really is sufficient. In what ways is he making you more like Jesus through this battle? I want you to know that you don't have to fight this all by yourself. God's best for you will always involve being a part of his community called the church. And so practically that means that, that if you are not part of a small group, you are vulnerable. All right, if, if you aren't serving somewhere, you, you are vulnerable. If you don't have somebody in your life that can ask you tough questions about what's going on up here, you are vulnerable. If you have some stuff in your life that you are keeping from your spouse, you are, you are vulnerable. The lion is a lot closer than you think. You, be careful. Let's wrap things up by looking at how Simon Peter signed off on his letter. Check out verse 10. He said, in the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. All right, it's as if Peter leaves with us right here, how things are gonna end when it's all said and done. God reigns and God holds the ultimate victory. Jesus has paid our debt and has triumphed over death once and for all. That's where the promise is. That's where we can lay our hope. And so no matter what you're going through, God wins in the end. No matter what your battle is, no matter what war you're walking through right now, we can have the assurance that, that God wins in the end. And so we can live from victory, not necessarily for victory. You see, we are promised right here to be restored, to be made whole and to be made strong. And so the last point of clarification in the midst of the fog of war we're going through goes like this. We will experience defeat before the battle is won. Do you believe this? I mean, do, do you believe it? I mean, it's one thing to believe in it. <laughs> 
But it's another to, to actually believe it yourself. Believing in it means, yeah, I, I agree with the concept. I've been taught that for a really long time. I know that's what the Bible says. I mean, it's kind of like not having a problem with the concept of it. But believing that Jesus will win is vastly different. It means that you are sold out. Nothing, nothing can touch your commitment to Jesus. It's not just this intellectual belief that you have, but it's a truth that has totally transformed your life, the way that you think, the way that, the way that you live. You see, believing that Jesus is our warrior who claims ultimate victory in the end means doing whatever he asks of you. It comes down to trust. Do you trust the good shepherd? Are you willing to stand up for him even if that means you have to stand alone? How confident are you in, in this victory? Back in the summer, um, Jamie is a friend that Savannah and I grew up with over in Louisville, Kentucky, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, Baron. He was premature and was in the NICU for about two months. His lungs failed to develop and almost, almost on his exact two month birthday, Baron died. She and her husband were just absolutely devastated as you can imagine and, and since that moment, Jamie has taken a lot of her thoughts and processed a lot of her emotions on her Instagram account. Just this past week, just this past week, I wanna read to you what she said. She said, I woke up at 3.28 a.m. last night to tears rolling down my cheeks. I had, been, I had been dreaming about my buddy. I woke up feeling the ache all the way down to my bones, a pain so penetrating, you, you forget to breathe. But there I laid in the darkness, feeling encompassed by it all and wanting to go back to sleep because I'm, I'm ready for morning, Jamie said. Aren't we all? Aren't we ready to come face to face with our king, to, to kneel at his feet and watch him redeem the world piece by piece to bring all this brokenness and make it whole? My boy is seven months old today, five months old in glory. And I'm thankful he gets to live in a place outside this present darkness. And I think if he could come back and tell us all one thing, I think he would say this, just hold on, keep fighting the good fight of faith and then finish the race. It's, it's worth it all. In this life, there will be voids that are never gonna be replaced. Pain so penetrating, we feel it down to our bones and, and people, we, we will grieve until that side of eternity. But remember Baron today and hold on to the absolute fact that even in this present darkness, eternity with Jesus, eternity with Jesus is worth it all. We win in the end. And until God says that the war is over, we will continue to, to walk through moments where it feels like we're being defeated. Some of us right now listening to my voice, a day is coming when you will be defeated by cancer. A day is coming when you will feel defeated by a divorce. A day is coming when, when you will feel defeated by a son or daughter who refuses to talk with you. You will feel defeated by whatever, whatever conflict you have at work. You, you will feel defeated by going through unemployment. You will feel defeated by depression. You'll feel defeated by walking through a midlife crisis. I don't know what that is for you. But the question is this, what, what fear is holding you back? And who, who are you following through the battle? Fear lies to us and fear can be so paralyzing because in the midst of battle, it tells us that, that we're losing, but the reality is we're, we're not. And so I wanna close by doing something a little bit differently. All right, I, I want you to answer this question in your mind. 
Where are you being pressed, attacked, and feeling weak right now? What's your battle? What's your war over right now? What what part of your life is really vulnerable? Where does it feel like you, you you just can't catch a break? Why do you feel like throwing in the towel right now? I wanna do something a little different. You don't have to do this. If it's really weird for you, don't feel any pressure. But I want you just to close your eyes and I want you just to hold out your hands to yourself like this, okay? And as you do that, whatever part of your life that came to mind a second ago, I wanna picture that that struggle, that battle is in your hands right now. Picture it, think about it. And silently, I want you to name whatever it is and I I want you just to talk to Jesus about it right now. This is gonna be harder for us. And even if you don't like it, I want you to tell Jesus that you're choosing to trust him with this part of your life. even, even though you're about ready to let, to let go. The reality is he alone will bring us to ultimate victory. This is what casting upon him is all about. Let's pray. God, I have no idea what a lot of us are holding in our hands right now, but I do know that life can be really difficult at times. Life stinks and can be really dark and we need to be reminded that defeat will not have the final say for those of us who have trusted in you. And so God, I, I, don't, I don't know what deliverance is gonna look like for the things that, that we are holding in our hands right now. Uh, maybe things will get better when we get home. Maybe things will get better this week. Maybe things will get better in the next five years. I don't, maybe, maybe things will, will never get better. Maybe things will only get worse from here on out. And I know that there are a lot of us, we, we feel like as David wrote in Psalm 23, that we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We're surrounded by darkness. Our circumstances are painful. And yet remind us, not just today, not just in this moment, not just when we show up one of our campuses or we tune in on Facebook Live, but remind us when we wake up on Monday morning, when we go to work, when we drive through our neighborhoods, when, when that fight happens again, when she texts that or, or, or he, he calls me that, would you remind us that, that you are the good shepherd and that you are with us through whatever it is that we're dealing with? God, we will trust you. And there's parts of our life where we're failing to trust you We pray right now that you you would help build faith, you would help build trust in those areas. Thank you for hanging with us. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.